America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, welcome to another Free Rider Friday. Love it, Ron. Yeah, me too. I, you know, the hours go fast enough, but now it seems like the months are just flying by. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> I am so, old, I am old, I show wet, are the bottoms of my trousers rolled. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we want to remind you, if you want to call into the listener line and ask uh, Ed or myself a question or throw out a topic that you'd like to see discussed, you can call us at 866-472-5790. Or you can send us a message on Twitter at hashtag AskTSOE. We'd love to hear from you. We, we continue to get emails from uh, from some of you and Twitter comments. We really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, Ed, did you see we got a few more iTunes reviews? I know. Very excited about that. Thank you yeah. so much for honoring our request from last week to do that. And and keep up the good work. And, and those of you that haven't, we forgive you, but you can do it this week. So. Yes, because we know a lot of you do listen on demand, and we're thrilled about that. And one way that we track that, of course, is is you writing reviews on iTunes. So if you could do that for us, that would be great. So, Ed, to kick off this uh, Free Rider Friday, why don't you start? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I'm going to want to jump in there and share uh, with you just something that we talked about last week, which is the whole tax theory. And I came across a chart this week that it talks about the, uh, the 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 top one percent versus the bottom ninety percent, right? And we're we're running right now that the to- the the top one percent is paying roughly uh, near forty percent of the entirety of of the tax base in the United States. So that's forty forty percent four zero. Uh, whereas the bottom ninety percent is creeping around thirty percent. So I can't see how. This doesn't put to rest the whole, you know, let's soak the rich tax <laughs> mantra that's happening. I mean, w- w- what what can you say to that that would justify in any way, no, we think it should be higher. We think it should be more. I, 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 I fail to understand where that could possibly be an argument. I know, and Ed, I've been, you know, I've been tracking that statistic like a hawk ever since I really got into this issue, and I've asked people on the opposite side of the political spectrum, so what is a fair percent for the top 1%? You know, it was at one point it was 30%, 35% as it, as it keeps growing. You'll never get an answer from them. 
No. They won't give you a numerical answer. There doesn't seem to be one, just more. Right, just more, whatever it is. And I would venture to say that if you had, you asked, you know, the person on the street type things, that you would probably get a number less than it currently is. Oh, enormously less. Enormously less. In fact, if you ask the average person how much uh, in taxes do, do, do they think, you know, the average person pays, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot less than it actually is. Um, and, and that's true of a lot of things. I mean, if you ask people about, you know, what's the average corporate profit rate, you know, people think it's 20, 30%. It's actually something like six or seven or 8%, you know? Right, right. So. And well, and of course, in reality, the economy only grows about 3% per year. So in, in total, can you really make a justification for anything other than 3%, you know, 3% as, a, yeah. as a total? Because you're, you're not factoring in the, the losses, right? In that 6% number, you're not factoring in the companies that go out of business uh, where, where they, they potentially have a negative drain on that. Right. Boy, I wish we were uh, hitting 3% growth last Eight years or so, we've been sub three percent. We've right. been around two, two and a half. It's been. I'm really just bad. using the but historical yeah, average as no, the easiest absolutely. one to throw out. So, <laughs> well, you know, since you brought up this tax issue, there was something I wanted to bring up from our from our show a couple of weeks ago when we talked about you know the tax day and this for good and evil, and that was the distinction between direct and indirect taxation. Mm. And I think I made a comment to the effect that I don't pay much difference to this. It's kind of a distinction without a difference. That, that's not true. I need to, I need to uh, recuse that statement. It, there, it, there is a difference. Um, direct taxation was actually forbidden by the Constitution. Uh, it had to be apportioned among populations. Right. Um, and, and that was a way to prevent the least populated states from, from taxing heavily the most populated states, right? Like the West taxing New York because they're wealthier. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that. And our founders thought that an indirect tax, a tax on goods, uh, was more liberty enhancing because then you wouldn't have to reveal, you know, like how much you earned to the government and all. I mean, they weren't thinking necessarily that. Don't get me wrong, but they, mm-hmm. you know, they thought that there was a, a clear uh, distinction between taxing a good and taxing an individual. And so there is a liberty argument for it. I think in the context that I said that, just I'm not trying to justify them, just trying to clarify it. Yep. When I was talking about reform. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a distinction without much of a difference. But if you're talking about a revolution, <laughs> if you want to talk about you know repealing the 16th Amendment or something like that, then then I could see going for an indirect tax and taxing consumption, taxing actual goods. Are you coming around to my side, Ron? That's good. No, well, know. from a liberty <laughs> from a liberty perspective, I am. I will still tell you there are massive problems if we if we even if we had a revolution. And I do want to draw a distinction between tax reform and revolution. I mean, right. if you're talking about the fair tax and repealing the Sixteenth Amendment, you're not talking about reform. You're talking right. about a revolution. Yes. Um, if you're talking about reform, I do not think a national sales tax or VAT tax or a consumption tax makes sense. I think a flat tax makes a lot more sense for reasons maybe we'll get into on another show. But I did want to clarify that. No, and that makes sense. And I, 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 I'm, I'm 
that that's fair, and it is a it is a revolution to completely change the tax structure from something that's be, mostly based on income to something that's something on consumption. I mean, clearly, I, I just think that that if you if you're going to go to to me, the distinction without a difference is the amount of reform that would be necessary. In my view, you might as well go the whole way and go go with revolution. Right, and, and certainly repealing amendment, as you know, is, is yes. no easy thing. I mean, that would require a revolution. It would require the states possibly to do it and bypass Congress or something. You wouldn't need the president's signature to do it. But I'll tell you one one just technical problem with it, and it's not a technical problem. It's a real-life issue. If you went to a fair tax or something, it would screw up a lifetime of, of tax planning, I mean, you and I, uh, many others have been socking away money into a retirement account on the assumption and on the plan that you're going to pull that money out Mm. and you're going to be taxed at a lot lower tax rate. But now, if you move to a consumption tax, you pull that money out and you spend it, which you will when you're elderly, you'll Mm -hmm. get nailed on every dollar. And that's going to screw up a lifetime of tax planning. And that is a big redistribution. And that's one of the transition effects that needs to be accounted for in any type of changeover. It, well, it, it certainly does, and I think that there are certainly ways to do that. There's there's always complications to to any Absolutely. any kind of a re- reform, but I, you know, I, I, the the question then becomes is do do you do a death by a thousand cuts, or or do you just bite the bullet and move on and and, and try to make it as fair as possible on a go forward basis? And I, I tend to opt toward the the the, the rip the band aid approach, uh, j- just because I think that the without it you are susceptible to not allowing those tweaks to happen on a timely manner and you'll never get where you want to be. Right. I think it's like when you talk about possibly reforming Social Security and people say, well, the transition effect of moving to, say, private accounts, you know, how are you going to finance all that debt? And, and, you know, this Mm -hmm. was a point Melton Friedman made. Look, folks, the debt's already there. Right. (laughs) All you're doing is bringing it to light. You know, the debt's already there, whether or not we touch this system or, or, you know, or not. And that's so you're right. Any transition, there's going to be complications. Right. The good news is from an apportionment tax standpoint is that as as far as I know, it's still it's still constitutional. It's still there. (laughs) They didn't repeal that. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, that's what the, the 16th Amendment did is it, is it allowed that indirect tax or, right. you know, that direct tax on on individuals. And, and we wouldn't have to we would have to repeal that amendment to to move to something else, I think, to be completely safe. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, all right. Well, I guess it's my turn and I'm going to throw out something that seems to be a common theme between you and me on this. But uh uh-huh. um, this is net neutrality. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> I know, I know. And I just wanted to share with you um, uh, uh, Ajit Pai, who's one of the uh, FCC commissioners. He's on the Republican side, so he voted against these uh, net neutrality regulations uh, that were passed. But he made some point. He did an interview with uh, Rush Limbaugh, and this was published in uh, Limbaugh's newsletter. So, folks, we're not going to be able to link to this. I think you have to be a subscriber. Uh, Rush might have some excerpts on his website. But he, he did make a few interesting points said that I just wanted to run by you and get your reaction to. He said the FCC is wielding a, a regulatory sledgehammer to a pound to pound a nail that that simply doesn't exist. <laughs> he said, in the past, innovators, engineers, and technologists have decided how the internet works, but now it's going to be regulators, politicians, and lawyers. 
That sounds like a prescription for a dynamic uh, internet, doesn't it? And what I really wanted to point out is he, he, he said this, and I found this to be very interesting. You know, the Netflix CFO, a couple of weeks after, after these regulations were passed, he, the CFO came out and said, you know, we don't really like Title II. We would have preferred a non-regulated solution. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, let's see, when you climb in bed with a snake and it bites you, um, who are you going to blame? Mm-hmm. Because they were one of the ones, one of the companies pushing for net neutrality. And here's what Mr. Pai said regarding Netflix that he heard. Now, there's no proof for this. He's just making a statement. He said, but there's allegations that Netflix, which, by the way, is one third of all traffic at peak times, mm. <laughs> which is a fascinating stat. Uh, but he said that he's heard allegations that they purposefully send traffic on what he calls worse roads slower roads and they refused to they refused open video standards they wouldn't they wouldn't comply with with video standards so isps could could know if something was a video or not in other words they were sending their stream down worse roads slower roads to to gel up demand for net neutrality regulation hmm yeah, I mean, who knows? All of all of that stuff is is suspect. I, you know, I, it's interesting that these guys are backing backing out on this at the at, after seeing what the regulations actually were. Um, you know, I, I, ultimately, I'm still of the belief that we're going to be able to out innovate this, and I know you're like, hopefully, but that's that's my belief. Uh, I think you know what we saw with with Apple saying, "Hey, listen, we'll ne- we're now going to allow you to subscribe to HBO for fifteen bucks a month, and it doesn't matter what provide cable provider you're on." Um, Google this week also came out with a wireless uh, uh, a wireless offering. So I, I I really do think that ultimately this is this is all going to be moot. But I absolutely agree with his first assertion which is they're you know they've got this massive sledgehammer on a nail that doesn't exist i totally agree with that and we 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 talked about that in previous shows where we're like the, the, the what we what pe- people's concerns were for the worst case scenarios that never happened right and 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 uh and i know we have to take a break here but just a couple more things from mr pie is th- there are some good news in the regs there was no regulation of content so the fears about you know you're gonna have to license a website or whatever they're going to start to control content although he says the door is open for that and he also says now you'll see a universal service fee on your isp bill just like you see on your telephone bill if you still have one <laughs> because now that applies to broadband not just voice and he also made the point that of course net neutrality helps big companies because it imposes higher costs on smaller companies so it's going to mean less competition less choice and probably higher prices in the long run mm-hmm. the exact opposite of the intent in the intent i know yep. it's great isn't it so so folks uh want to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. Follow the show live by going to Twitter, uh, hashtag AskTSOE, and we do monitor that during the show. We're happy to take questions or comments. And also, Ed put up a Facebook page for us, Facebook.com slash AskTSOE. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, folks, you can get a hold of us if you want to talk to us today on Free Rider Friday by calling one 866 472 5790, of course, hashtag AskTSOE on Twitter, and we do monitor that during the show, so we'd love to hear from you. And I just want to say that we, Ron and I were talking about the uh, the FCC, and the his name is uh, Mr. Pi, correct, Ron? Correct. And uh, uh, we would love to have him as a guest on the show, so if anybody has a connection to him, let us know. We'll- <laughs> I did reach out to him, Ed, but you have to do it on the FCC's website. And, you know, who knows how long that's going to take? Because, like yeah. you say, they have hours of operation, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, the, the middle C does stand for communications, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> Uh, but it, we're looking for more of a personal connection. So if any of you have a personal connection to to it, uh, Mr. Pye, we would love to have him on the show here and talk about net neutrality. I think that would be a great show to, to do. In fact, in a sense, Ron, we've done an entire show on it just over the course of like six shows. So we have, we have, well, I find it so fascinating. But It is. It's a fascinating topic. All right. I'm going to throw out one uh, that I know you're, we, we've talked a little bit about previously this week, and that is the launch of the Apple Watch. Yes. Launch of the Apple Watch. Here's some 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 quick stats on this. 2.3 million units pre-sold, uh, which I think is if I if I'm reading this correctly, outsells all previous smartwatches to date. <laughs> Combined. <laughs> Combined. <laughs> right? In Thank you, it, Apple. Two, in, in two days or three days. Right. So this is this is the you know, talk about market power that these guys have. Um, and I, I work this out to you know on minimum minimum to, to Apple. We're talking about one point one five billion in revenue. Right. Uh, and that's like if all of these two point three were the low end with with pretty much the cheapest band that you could buy. Right. Um, so wow. I mean, how you know, that, how does a company go about doing that? I mean, just just logistically to get 
2.3 million units ready to go. And I know there's going to be back orders. It's going to take a while for them to fulfill all that stuff. But, I mean, when you really think about it, it's, it's, it's really just an incredible uh, logistics uh, experiment that, that, that they do every time they do a major project product launch like this. Um, and mostly without the assistance of anyone in government, you know, so go figure. I know there's no czar, you know. For <laughs> right, there's no Apple watches. Watch czar. Well, no. One thing I find interesting is they say, you know, this is the, 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 the most personal and intimate Apple product ever because it's actually, you know, connected to your body. Right. And, and uh, I know it syncs with the iPhone and all of that, but that, that is a very interesting perspective. And it also kind of puts them in the world of fashion. I mean, with the high-end watch, and that, that's kind of an interesting place for them to, to go to. Right, which is why they hired, I think, uh, the CEO of, of uh, Burberry. Bur- that's right. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Um, so, but, but let me give you a, let me ask you this. There's an a interesting uh, Harvard Business Review blog, and we both know this gentleman, Rafi uh, Muhammad. He's the author, uh, the pricing consultant, the author of the 1% Windfall, I believe, mm, and, and, yep. and other books on pricing. I really like this guy's work. Uh, he's a great thinker. And he says he, he gives Apple an A. <clears throat> he's talking about the watch. Mm-hmm. He gives them an A for ambition and a D for pricing strategy. Interesting. And he, okay. And he points out some problems that he sees with their pricing strategy. I just want to run this by you. He says, first off, there's no upgrades. Now, this was one question I had for you because I'm kind of a watch freak. I've been on the quest for the perfect watch my whole life, and I've never you know, <laughs> yet to find it. But, uh, but he said, you know, this thing, you know, it's going to go obsolete, just like your iPhones do or your laptops or whatever. And uh, this is a big problem. And it would be one thing that would prevent me from spending a lot of money uh, on on a high end watch if I knew it was you know the guts of it <laughs> were right. the exact same as the low end watch so there's no upgrades there's no carrier subsidies so they're not getting subsidized like you do with your iPhone you know from Verizon or ATT and he thinks uh, like our friend probably Reed Holden thinks this too that the price range is way too wide going from three forty nine to seventeen thousand now he thinks Ed what they should have done is they should have a narrow price range. Like two forty nine to two thousand, and that they should offer a monthly payment plan, which I didn't think was a bad idea. You know, it turns like eleven bucks a month or something, and offer a trade in program, which I think they're going to have to deal with somehow, especially at the high end. Yeah, I totally it, agree. They're, it's it's not. I thought I don't think. I think that's uh, that announcement is yet to come. It's true. It's yes. it's not part of the initial launch, but it's got to be there. It's got to be there. And he thinks that they should have bundled, and I think this is an interesting idea, that they should bundle the watch with the iPhone. Because I guess the two are, you know, you need you need the iPhone, right, to really right. get full operation of the watch. So so what's interesting about, you know, reading this, and it's always easy for, you know, somebody in pricing to sit back and critique another person's pricing or company's pricing strategy from the outside. But, like, here's the most profitable company on earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You know, I, their profits are just amazing. And here you have kind of an academic sitting there critiquing everything. And it's like, hmm, I'd probably bet on Apple because they're not full of dummies. Yeah. <laughs> they have their yeah. own pricing people in there. 
And they're not stupid. Right. Well, which has always led me to question, you know, we, we are against dumbbell pricing, as uh, many of you know. If, those of you who have go, gone out and taken a look at our book, we appreciate that, too, by the way. But, we, you know, we priced that at 20 bucks for the, 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 the paperback book and $5 for the Kindle version. By the way, uh, new this week, for those of you who might be interested, if you purchase the Kindle – I'm sorry, the, the, the paper – um, soft softback, you get automatically get the Kindle. So we're we're very pleased about that that linking is happening. But um, y- you know, I, I, I'm, I which always questions my belief in in charm pricing. We don't believe in charm pricing, but Apple charm prices the heck out of stuff. Um, yeah. So you know, <laughs> maybe they know something that I don't. But if I ever meet a pricer from Apple, I'm certainly going to be asking about charm pricing and research that they've done on that, or whether they've just uh, um, whether they've just got, kind of gone along with it. But I don't have a problem with the range. I, I think the range is okay. Um, I do think that he is correct in his assessment that there's that that there has got to be some trade in program. And but as I mentioned, that's coming. I mean, heck, there's a trade in program now that they don't talk about it with just about any Apple product. If you go into an Apple store and you're dissatisfied with a current product, they 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 will buy what did it what you have back from them and figure out a way to give you some kind of a trade in. They don't advertise it a lot, but it's there. It's there. It's sure. there. And, and, they've, um, and they've got to do something at the high end. If they have to give you new guts because they came out with a new version, they're going to do that. Yeah, or they're just going to swap you a new watch and, and you know take 80% or whatever from of the value of the watch. But because it has to be at that point, you know, the pricing strategy is for the, so, the solid gold. So just from a, even a perceived value standpoint, the, 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 the watch doesn't keep any better time. Right. No, not at all. It doesn't have any different functionality. It's purely cosmetic, right? Absolutely. And so I, I'm thinking that ju- you know, just like if if I ever, you know, I have the same deal with with where I buy uh, my my wife's uh, Christmas presents occasionally. If we buy jewelry, that you know, the the Jareds will 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 trade in at any point, right? Right. Right. No, that high end watch is a is a fashion statement, and that's. You know, that's one of the other things I've been reading about it. That, you know, what does Apple know about like, you know, high end watches? Like, you know, what is a Petit Philippe or whatever says, you know, you, you don't really own one of these. You just preserve it for the next generation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and that's obviously not true with a digital watch that's going to become obsolete in a year. But um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how they make that transition into more of a fashion statement. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised with, with if they don't come out with the bundle either, Ron. I think that I think that's a good idea. I think I, I but and I would not be surprised if that is at some point in the future the way that they package it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm less enamored with his idea of you know offering a monthly payment. I mean, maybe at the high end, but certainly, I mean, a three hundred forty nine dollar watch, really a monthly payment. You're going to lease this? I mean, well, yeah, and, and I bet you, I bet you, you can. I mean, uh, I've bought a couple things off of the Apple website, and granted, they were computers, but I, I was always given a choice to lease it or 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 um, do a monthly payment plan on it on, yeah, on the website I, on the checkout. So, yeah, I think Apple still does have its own leasing program. Maybe they use a third party to facilitate it, but they do have leasing options to buy anything, don't they? Yeah. They do, yeah. so I'm I'm sure that that that's going to be part of it. And, and again, it's just that they they choose not to advertise that stuff. I think mostly because, and I think this is a good strategy because it would tend to confuse, right? If they right. were if they, if that messaging were out there for everyone about trade in programs and 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 leasing options and all of that, and, and they were they were trying to 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 make that known throughout the marketplace. 
well, it, it's going to confuse people. So they just put the price out, and then when the individual buyer goes in there, you're given the different options when you you know go you go to either check out on the website, or I'm sure that that people talk about this at the store as well. Sure, sure. Hey, Ed, you say the 2.3 million uh, pre-sold Apple watches. Any there's is there any breakdown between how many people bought you know the seventeen thousand dollar watch? No, just yeah. I mean just a lot of speculation <laughs> on it. I have not seen an article. If any of you have seen an article where it does give the breakdown, please uh, send it to me or just uh, use uh, hashtag Ask TSOE on Twitter to get get that over to us. But I, I, it's all it's all speculation. Pe- people start to say you know hey we think it must be this percent. Yeah, one yeah. percent or half of one percent or something. Yeah. yeah, I know they've sold some. I mean, yeah. no, no doubt about it. What were they doing? They were you had to come in and and uh, uh, you, you got twenty minutes with like an Apple rep uh, to fit the watch and for them to walk you through it. But if you got if you got the seventeen thousand dollar one, you got like a thirty minute or forty five minute consultation or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like wow. So let me ask you this, Ron. We only got a few minutes left in this this segment, so I want to. But, but with the with the watch deal, um, you know, one of the features was like this ability to like share your heartbeat and tap. Is with like is that is that what you're talking about? In, like the, in pursuit of the 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 perfect watch, that's something that would be more intimately connected to you like that. No, the perfect watch is just you know. It's more of a fashion statement. It has nothing to do with telling time. It's just something that's cool. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Well, <laughs> I, let's face it. It's 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 one of the few pieces of jewelry a man can wear, right? So, uh, you know, guys that are obsessed with watches are, are just looking for that really cool, hip, you know, watch. Yeah. Well, I haven't worn a watch in years. I mean, the only piece of jewelry I wear is my wedding ring, period. End of story. So. Right. Right. I, I think they should have a wedding watch. I think more guys would probably get married. <laughs> That's a good thought. That's a good thought. Well, we, we're up against this segment, so let, let us uh, plan to take our break. But if you do want to get a hold of us, please use hashtag AskTSOE, or you can call us at 866 472 5790 to ask us a question. Of course, please follow the show notes at verisage.com slash TSOE. We always post those show notes up after the show and give you a preview of the upcoming show. And of course, email TSOE at verisage.com will automatically email both Ron and myself. But right now, we're going to hear from our friends at Azamba. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here on a free rider Friday, and I'd like to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. We continue to get your emails, which we love to hear uh, from our listeners around the world. And also... Please make sure to check out com slash TSOE where you'll find full show notes. Um, we just posted the, the show from last week at on the uh, We're All Consultants Now. There was a little bit of a delay getting it up there, but it is up there because I thought you gave them some great content last week. Well, it was really sharing the great content of Peter Block, but yeah, it's good stuff, I think. It really is, and, and I think very practical to help firms really communicate their value better and, and position themselves at the uh, top of uh, Joe Pine's economic value of progression, you know, that, that transformation point, because that's really what consultant, consultants do. Yep, yep, nope, absolutely. So I've got something to throw out at you, and again, this is from Harvard Business Review blog. Uh, it's What Peter Drucker Knew About 2020 by Rick Wurtzman. And, uh, you know, this is um, Peter Drucker's, he's talking about um, his concept of the knowledge worker. And this was a concept that Peter Drucker first published in 1959. I know we've mentioned this before, but I always look back at that and go, wow, that was how, how long ago, 50, 60 years or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, in a book called Landmarks of Tomorrow, he first described the rise of the knowledge worker. And uh, three decades later, he said knowledge was a more crucial economic resource than land, labor, or, or financial assets, leading to what he called a post-capitalist society. And that's another book that he wrote. Um, but what this what this blog talks about is the the six things that uh, the Drucker knew. Uh, about knowledge workers, and we've touched on these themes, you know, onesie twosie here and there, but never in full. And I and I just really thought this was a great, uh, great post because it summarizes what what Drucker really thought about how to handle a knowledge organization. And the first characteristic of running a, a knowledge enterprise, he thought, was figure out what information is needed. You know, and I know we've talked about the difference between data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but he, he, Drucker thought it was information that enables knowledge workers to do their jobs, and he said the bean counters and the sales force and the ID department they serve up numbers that they believe are relevant, but he said these folks don't have a clue. Mm. <laughs> he said, you know, you need an adequate information system, and he, he thought that you had to get outside the four walls too and look at the information like from non-customers. Right and what sure. was going on outside, rather than just looking at an internal uh, internal data, and I thought that was a really interesting point. 
Yeah, I mean that. What, what was his last, his famous last speech? The person who knows least about your organization is your CFO, right? Uh, at the CFO conference, I believe, or it was a CEO conference. A oh, CEO conference. CEO that's right. Conference. That's right. That's right. And, 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 he, and he did this at the height when the CFO was, you know, like the sexy position, and everybody was talking about the rock star CFOs of these companies. And here's Drucker saying these people are clueless because his argument was that they dealt with the past. They primarily solved problems. They didn't pursue opportunities. You know, he always talks about knowledge being about the past and entrepreneurialism being about the future. And CFOs, you know, like most accountants, are focused on the past. Well, and and it, just the accounting, and I, I just it, this kind of came to me today as I was doing a session uh, for for some accountants. You know, the accounting is 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 a past participle. That's the that's the verb tense, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So it's by definition. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then, and this is one of my favorite Drucker concepts is the second one from this article is actively prune what is past its prime, right? Continuously winding down those products and service and programs so they're no longer really making a contribution. He called it systematic abandonment, you know, and he, he made the, uh, maybe uncouth point that the human body has a natural mechanism to discharge waste but the corporate entity doesn't <laughs> i've heard that quote that's a great quote and it's, and the, and it's true it's true it, it is true and he and he just wails against how too many entities throw their best talent on yesterday's opportunities and not tomorrow's and and that's a, a, a complete misallocation you know you want your smartest people working on that apple watch not, right. not you know, the new version of the laptop that's been around for decades and may be on its way out. Right. Or the or, or the i the iPod, which you know still gets revs, right? But I'm sure the top the top people are not worried about it. Right. Right. And then the third one is embrace employee autonomy, and of course this is something we have talked about. But most organizations remain paragons of command and control, but a knowledge worker has to have autonomy. Right, which is freedom and taking responsibility for results. Um, and then uh, the fourth one is building a true learning organization uh, because he thought knowledge was perishable uh, mm -hmm. more than any other resource. So hence, you know, what is it, Alvin Toffler's word, opsolage? Opsolage, right, yeah. sure. Um, and then they, he, uh, this, this author even quotes John Hagel, the co-chairman of Deloitte Center for the Edge, says that firms need new architectures designed to increase the flow of information and learning inside and outside the organizational walls. And I'm thinking, hmm, this is coming from Deloitte, so one of the big four accounting firms, and they need new architecture. Hmm, I could think of a few things. <laughs> <laughs> like, stop billing by the hour. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then this one is is uh, something, of course, that that we're all over. Is, is is these organizations need to provide a much stronger sense of purpose, because what motivates a knowledge worker is is not um, you know greed. It's their values, right? Mm -hmm. So they have to have a strong sense of purpose. Hence his concept that they're volunteers, and that we have a lot to learn from the the not for profit world. And the last one is be more mindful of those left behind. And he's talking about the knowledge workers' cousins, which are the service workers. And he didn't think that it was right for 
rewards not to be shared more, you know, more equitably, whatever that means. And this is where I have to go off the rails from Drucker. He was a real big believer in CEOs were making way too much money. He was a real big believer that there are, you know, nobody should be paid more than 10 times the, the lowest paid worker or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think he's completely wrong about this. But because, uh, you know, if you think about a, a football team, the quarterback, you know, is not going to make the same as, <laughs> you know, the center or something. I mean, the quarterback obviously is, is making a larger contribution. But uh, did, did you see, happen to see that company that is up in Canada that's paying everybody 70 grand? Is a minimum wage? No. Oh. So, oh, well, it's a minimum, or just everybody gets seventy grand. It, it, well, I think I think it, that's kind of the minimum wage. That's what what we what you come in at. I don't know if it's for everybody. I'll have to have to mm-hmm. link to the actual article. Somebody sent it to me and said Peter Drucker would uh, would, would would agree with this, and and uh, I thought, hmm, yeah, he probably would. I'm not sure I do, but <laughs> we'll try and link to that on the show notes. But uh, this was a good article, and again, we will link to this, folks. This is something you'll be able to access, but it's just a really good checklist of the difference between a knowledge organization and other types of organizations, and it's, it's titled What Peter Drucker Knew About 2020. So let me ask you this, Ron. So the, in reading this article, what, when you were processing this through, did you get any sense for why you feel that either this guy or Drucker or even yourself, why this, while, while these things seem so inherently obvious and we sit there and go, yeah, Ron, absolutely, that they are not done? I know. I, I, you know, it's it's not the knowing; it's the doing. In fact, I think Jeffrey Pfeiffer from Stanford wrote a book called something very similar to that. It's you know, it's not the knowing; it's the doing. Um, I mean, we know these things, but yeah, we we continue to defy almost every one of them. And I, it's a it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, and I I'd love to think Ed, it's because they don't know it. Right. I mean, let's face it, you and I have been kind of marinating in all this for so long mm-hmm. um, that it's kind of second nature. When you go out to a new audience or something, they, they like I, I still encounter people who have never heard of Peter Drucker. And I'm not talking about millennials. I'm talking about people that are our age. Wow. That have never heard of Peter Drucker. And I'm thinking maybe this is not as widespread as we think it is, you know. I guess, but I mean, you know, pe- people who've been through any kind of business school training or, or you know, uh, gone to, to college, if you had, how, could, how did you miss Peter Drucker? And well, you know what? <laughs> you know, if that's all you did, though, is get a Harvard at, at, at one of the big guys, Wharton, you might mm-hmm. not actually encounter Drucker because you know what? Academics didn't like Peter Drucker. Mm-hmm. They really didn't. They had no respect for him. They didn't think he was empirical. Uh, they didn't think he was scientific. You know, he was too vague. He was too general. Um, there was not a lot of respect amongst the academic community, which is why he was at, you know, Claremont College and not one of the Ivy Leagues. <laughs> well, I can distinctly remember a mar- at least one marketing professor that I have leading off with Drucker. But then again, this guy was in industry. He was he was actually he was not he was not an academic. Now that I think back on it, he you know we we called him professor, but he you know, he, he 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 had to get out of the class pretty quickly because he said like, I got to get to work. You know, <laughs> what's that line from Ghostbusters? Ed, when he's talking about well, maybe we should go get a job, and Bill Murray says, Hey, listen, I've been in the private sector. They expect results 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, but it, it is it is interesting though that that this is so in, inherently obvious that I, I guess it's fear that that people if you begin to embrace this stuff that you know you're that people will will accuse you of taking your eyes off the ball and it's going to kill revenue or something. I mean, I guess that's the fear. I guess that's the belief. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's some loss aversion in there. And I also think it, it I, I do think there's something to the idea that managers or executives, people in business are control freaks. And they think they have to control everybody and micromanage them to get results, you know. And and that, that comes through with the measure what you you know, what you can measure you can manage and the whole performance appraisal, all these things that you and I kind of rail against, uh, is is kind of part of their almost personality where no no we have to control these things to make sure we're we're doing we're doing the right things yeah but as we've talked about it's the it's the ultimately the illusion of control and not actual control so you, you know it reminds me of jobs great line that apple doesn't hire smart people to tell them what to do apple hires smart people so they can tell us what to do great line and and, yeah. and, and i think that is just so opposite of what you see out there you know from most companies most organizations so yeah, yeah. It's been around. It's the, all of this stuff. Like, like, like you've told me, you've, any any management fad that that people are looking at today can be traced back to Peter Drucker, probably in the forties or fifties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Absolutely. The guy was way ahead of his time, and 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 the, the thing that I find really interesting about him is his his work has stood the test of time. I mean, you pick up an average business book and tell me what the shelf life is. You know, go back and read a book from 10, 20 years ago, like like even In Search of Excellence or even Built to Last. You know, Jim Collins and some of these other famous guys, their their books don't stand the test of time. They don't. Yeah, but Rutgers truckers do. do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Because he was more disciplinary, multidisciplinary. He looked at history. He looked at, you know, science. He looked at uh, economics, psychology. He looked at all sorts of things and was just really dealing with human behavior and you know, wisdom's timeless when it comes to human behavior. That's why we still, you know, plow through Aristotle. <laughs> Love those guys. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, we need to take our uh, last break, but I'd like to remind you that you can email Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com and send us a note on Twitter at hashtag AskTSOE. And now we want to hear from Ed's employer, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're here, Ron, with our last segment of Free Rider Friday. I can't believe, again, how quickly these uh, these sessions go by when we're bouncing around from topic to topic rather than I, I focused on, on one thing. But uh, just, just a quick reminder, you can get a copy of our book, which is out now both in paperback and Kindle format, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. Signed up earlier this week, our book for what's called the Kindle Matchbook, which means if you buy the Hard, the hard copy, I should say, which is, or the softbound copy, you would get the Kindle version as part of that free as well. So we're uh, happy to do that for you. Really, really would love to get your feedback on that. So please post uh, editorial reviews. I'm sorry, reviews on that book as well. Hey, Ron, two I, quick things. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, Ed, I, I, you know, I just received a copy of our paperback book earlier this week, and I've had a chance to, to look through it. And I just have to say, folks, this is really great. Ed, you did a great <laughs> job putting this uh, paperback book together. So if, you, if you're still not into ebooks, folks, and you want the uh, paperback version, uh, this is a really, it's still a good reading experience. Even though you can't click on the links, but um, it's <laughs> it's still a it's still a great uh, still a great book. I think it looks really good. Yeah, no, it it, uh, it did come out pretty good. There's some stuff we need to make some short corrections in it, but but overall, I'm very pleased with the with the end product. So especially for our our first time out. Well, here's a couple things that I just want to quick tick off with with you, Ron. First is just to to let you and others know that there is a, a fantastic course on uh, some of the economic thinking that you and I present at a website called learnliberty.org. Oh, yeah, sure. I've, I've uh, seen some of their stuff. Yep, and the, 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 their latest one that they've just released is, a, is just a schools of thought in classical liberalism, mm-hmm. which um, I think is just, just fantastic. There, it deals with all of the, the topics that you and I tend to, to talk about, uh, the Austrian school of economics, subjective theory of value. They're, they're, they're talking in there about uh, even, even, even Ayn Rand and Robert Nozick get, get, get brought up. Um, and they they take it back to even some of the the more classic views of things, but a, just a terrific course. And we'll we'll post a link t- to that. Um, and there's some some really good stuff uh, and and videos that you can just take some quizzes going along. So I just wanted to to mention that. This other thing that I wanted to talk about, and we've had a couple of really good posts at, at our Verisage and Friends, which is a private site that that Ron and I uh, look to, where we, we we invite some professionals into that. I guess there's about 200 or so uh, people who are part of that site now, and there's really good back and forth on on Facebook. But one of the things that came came up this week, Ron, and I want to just ask you to tell a story because I don't think you've ever told it on the air before. Uh, and that is about uh, contingency pricing for professionals, or w- what is also known as what we like to call our tip clause. And I, I would just love for you, if you wouldn't mind, to tell the story of of the the guy who uh, the managing partner who uh, you first encountered um, with, with, with uh, where he said he would have made a, a boatload more money if he had employed a tip clause. Would you mind sharing that sure. with us? Sure. 
Sure. This uh, guy's name is Tim for for purposes of this discussion. It's and not really a, Tim. <laughs> and he's a CPA in a big firm, and he's a tax tax partner, and he's a managing partner of, of this particular office in this big firm. And he's got a long-term client. He's had them for 20 years. They're really good friends. Their families get together, go to ball games, the whole nine yards. And the guy comes to him one day, and he says, Tim, you've been my CPA for 20 years. I trust you with my life. I'm ready to sell my business. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to update the business valuation. So we put the business on the market at the right price. I want you to um, fly with me anywhere we have to go to meet with potential buyers. I want you to be involved in the negotiation. I want you to work with the lawyers on the sales contract, make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And I want you to do your fantastic tax planning and keep as much of my wealth as you can away from Bill Clinton. This was in 1997 when Clinton was in the White House. And it sounds to me, Ed, like he just scoped the job, didn't he? He did. We just gave this is the three things I want. Go. <laughs> and pretty sophisticated customer, obviously. Great business, by the way. Highly profitable. Of course, Tim knew all this. And so Tim was telling this story basically just as, as I told it and said, you know, this was one of those jobs where we charged out the highest consulting rate in the firm, which was $500 an hour. Now, that's a high rate in 1997. And he looked at me and he said, and not only that, but everybody who worked on this file got charged out at nine hundred dollars or five hundred dollars an hour, and I took that to mean Ed, that you know even when you if you walk by the file, you probably yeah. log some time on it, right? <laughs> so I asked him. I said, "Well, how did it go?" And he said, "Well, because of all the work that I did and the, the great business valuation, negotiation skills, tax planning skills, I basically put fifteen million dollars in my 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 customer's pocket, which is not that unheard of. This is like a hundred and fifty million dollar business sale, and you know any really good CPA could do that." And I said, "Well, Tim, what did you charge him?" And he said, "Well, when the when I looked at the WIP report on the on the billing, he said I looked at it, said it's not enough. I marked it up twenty five percent. He said, and I sent a bill out for thirty eight grand. And I said, "Well, let me ask you, what would have happened if you would have wrote a clause into your agreement with this gentleman and said something to the effect like, look, we'll we'll do.'" And then list out what he said, you know, we'll update the business valuation, fly anywhere in the world, work with the lawyers, tax planning. And and then you said, and we'll do whatever it takes to effectuate the sale of this business. And Mr. Customer, we're going to let you decide how much it's worth at the end of it. Now, that's relinquishing your pricing power and your pricing leverage to the customer but remember, this is a 20-year customer. They were, they were friends, and there was no way the customer would ever take advantage of Tim. I said, Tim, if you had a tip clause like that in this deal, what do you think the guy would have paid you? And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, probably a half a million dollars. And now remember, he got paid 38000 And so I went to the whiteboard, and I said, well, then you just made the ultimate accounting entry for you accountants out there. I debited experience for 462,000 and I credited cash <laughs> for 462,000 meaning he left 462,000 on the table and the problem with it is when they look at their realization reports they're going to see 125% right because he marked up the time 25% Tim's a hero. he's a hero and who's going to come in and and throw the turd in the punch bowl and say hey where's the 462,000 Right. This gets back to the moral hazards of what we measure. Right. Mm-hmm. The the one twenty five looks really precise and it looks really good, but it gives it doesn't give you the whole picture of how much money he left on the table. 
And so I developed this idea of a tip clause. And this was back when I published my first book. In fact, I think it was in my very first edition. And uh, lawyers had been using this for a while. They called it a success fee. Sometimes they called it a retrospective price clause. But basically, you, you let the, the customer decide what they want to pay you, uh, depending upon their satisfaction. And uh, we have one Verisage colleague, uh, Ed, in the North Island of New Zealand, and he's in a town with a population of about 6,000. Since I met Peter in the year 2000, he's received about $2 million New Zealand dollars in tips. tips and alone. I know this because for a long time, he would fax me a copy of the check when he received a tip. So somewhere in my files, I have a file with a bunch of copies of checks written out to his accounting firm for tips and he's been very successful at implementing that so that's the that's the tip clause now it's a it's a great story and you know t- tips are just something that i think m- many many more professionals across all sectors should be be looking to do uh, especially with those trusted uh, accounts that and, and customers that you have for years and years and years and years i mean why the heck not Right. When you're at the top of the value curve like that and you really help somebody achieve their dream, sell a business, buy a business or whatever, uh, you're, you're probably uh, leaving a lot more money on the table in those situations and, and charging by the hour is just absolutely insane. So, Ed, what, what's on uh, store for next week? We have, are starting perhaps a new segment. We have to see how this goes, but we're going to look at our best business books, Ron. We're going <laughs> to give some reviews of our best business books. We always talk about books, but we never really uh, give them any particular attention. So that's the plan. Next week, we're going to talk about specific business books and re- give them our review. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So I guess I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, when Ed and I will be doing best business books. And in the meantime, folks, please review our show notes at verisage.com slash TSOE for more information on the show and complete show notes. And always email Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. Thank you for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week.